There are two scripture readings this morning. The first reading is from the book of Acts. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God. Acts 16, 25 through 35. The second reading is from the book of Romans. But the righteousness that is by faith says, the word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the message concerning faith that we proclaim, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, Anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10, 6 through 13. The title of the sermon this morning is Crossing the Line. Crossing the Line. And the line that I'm um, referring to is this line but between Christianity on the one hand and, and not Christianity on the other. Uh, so the, the, I'm talking about crossing over this line where you become a, where you self-identify as a Christian for the first time. In other words, where you commit. You commit to, to Jesus. You say, I, I'm in. I'm, I'm crossing the line. I'm doing this. And you move out of this exploratory phase. Now, there's nothing wrong with exploring and, you know, considering and checking things out and trying things on for size, that's fine. And as I've said many times before, that we want our church to be a place where people can do that. So maybe you're still in that phase, and that's fine. But others of you, it's time to move out of that phase because this exploring and checking things out and trying things on for size phase is supposed to be interim. It's supposed to last for a time and then end. And for us today, for uh, educated, career-oriented New Yorker types, there's this, this tendency to just let things drag on and to not commit out of fear. So the, the place you see this the most, the place I see it the most as a pastor, is in uh, long-term dating relationships. You know, you've got a couple that they're, they've been out of school for a number of years. They're working steady jobs They've been together for a few years, and they say, well, you know, maybe, maybe in a year or two, we'll get engaged. Well, no, just no, that's, that's wrong. And you say, well, well who are you to, to tell me how to live my life? Let me put that back on you. Who are you to tell yourself how to live your life? How's your track record? How many times have you been through this? How's it working out for you? Is this your first time around? As far as who am I, I'm somebody who has walked through 
failed marriages and affairs and infidelity and really screwed up dating relationships with tons of couples. And what I can tell you is this screws things up. Not committing massively screws things up and creates all kinds of problems. So if you're a man in that type of relationship, you need to fish or cut bait. You need to either break up with her or propose, like now, this week. <laughs> I just got somebody a ring. <laughs> you can thank me later. That's not the point of the sermon today. That's all just for free. The point is, I'm trying to make the point that we have a problem with commitment. You know, you see it in that area. When it comes to these big, important relationships, we have a problem with commitment. We have a problem with committing, with crossing the line. We want to keep our options open, and that's how it is with God. People want to just dabble. They want to just dabble. And Jesus wasn't so much a fan of that. You know, there's this place where he says, look, just be hot or cold. Don't be lukewarm. I can't stand lukewarm. There's another place where he says, if you're not for me, you're against me. So my question to some of you this morning is, which is it? Are you for him? Because if you're not, you're against him. And what I want to do this morning is help you get to the place where you can say, I'm for him. I am in, or you cannot be unsure anymore. You know, some of you, if, if somebody asks you, are you a Christian? You'd say, well, I, I think I am. I, I go to a Christian church. I think it's a Christian church at least. You know, so I guess I'm a Christian. No, 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 no. You need to know for sure. You need to know for sure, and that's what I want to talk about this morning. By the way, the reason you need to know for sure is what we talked about in those, what was talked about in those scripture readings. You say, what's the upside? Why is it so important that I commit to Jesus? Why is it so important that I cross the line? Well, because that's what you have to do to get saved. Now, that word saved, uh, that's right up there for, for New Yorkers. That's right up there with like the word evangelical or the, the phrase born again uh, in terms of these religious phrases that, that create these massive allergic reactions, you know, really freak people out, saved. But, you know, so if you start, people that start getting more religious, you know, they'll say, well, you know, I, I've been going to church more, but, you know, it's, it's not like one of those churches where people get saved, don't worry. And <laughs> my question is, if you're going to a church where people don't get saved, what are you going for? That's what you need. That's exactly what you need. You need to get saved. You need to be born again. And those passages that you heard read earlier tell you how it happens. It's very simple. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you will be saved. That's what I want to talk about this morning. What does it mean? To believe in Jesus? What does it mean to trust in Jesus? And there's two parts to the sermon. First, it, the believe itself, we're going to talk about the intellectual side, but then second, there's this element of trust, which is the emotional side. So it's all wrapped up in the biblical word believe, but for us, believe is intellectual. So I want to add this second word, which is trust. First, believe, and second, trust. Those are the two things you have to do 
to become a Christian. Those are the two things you have to do to commit and to be saved. So first, believe. The first thing you have to do to, to become a Christian, to commit to Jesus Christ, is you have to believe. You have to believe these things intellectually. And that's what we've been talking about for the last eight weeks. We've done this eight-week series going through the Apostles' Creed, the oldest statement that we have of Christian belief, that Christians have been saying this for, for 2,000 years. And if you remember, and if you went to a church where this creed was recited uh, growing up, then you remember, what, what are the first two words of the creed? I believe. I believe in God the Father, Almighty Maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son. I believe that Jesus was born of a virgin and suffered and died under Pontius Pilate and was raised again on the third day. I believe in the Holy Spirit. We spent three weeks on that. And then last week, final week of the series, I believe in the church, the communion of saints. That's what we've been talking about for eight weeks. To be a Christian, you have to believe all that. You have to be able to sign off on all of those things. And there's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't believe those things. You can't say, well, I'm a Christian. I just don't believe all that stuff. No, that's that's not what the word Christian means. By definition, you are not a Christian if you don't believe all that stuff. And people have always tried to debate this because they like the sound of Christian, so they want to claim it for themselves. Uh, So Thomas Jefferson would be one very famous example of this uh, a long time ago, obviously. And Jefferson, along with Franklin and a few of the others, didn't believe in the creed. He He couldn't sign off on all those things. His brain wouldn't let him. But what Jefferson said is, you, you probably know this, you know, this, and this is the, uh, before the days of word processors. So he had to do it with actual uh, scissors and actual glue. He made his own Bible. He cut out the verses he liked. He had to have uh, multiple Bibles to do it with, obviously, because he got front and back of the pages. So he cut out the verses he liked and glued them on to these new pages and then left out the parts that he couldn't believe in. And there's this uh, famous line in one of his letters to a, a church, a group of churchgoers, where he says, well, you know, I'm a true Christian, a disciple of the teachings of Jesus. I'm a true Christian, a disciple of the teachings of Jesus. In other words, I live like a Christian. I'm a true Christian. Only one problem with that. That's just not what the word Christian means. It's not what the word Christian has ever meant. The word Christian has never meant somebody who lives according to the teachings of Jesus. That's not the dictionary definition of the word. And Jefferson is trying to to claim it for his own and make it mean something else. A Christian has always meant somebody who believes these supernatural truths about Jesus, first and foremost. And so Jefferson is making up this new religion. And he says, well, I'm going to call my new religion where I I follow the teachings of Jesus, I'm going to call it Christianity. Well, go get your own name. That name is already taken. That name means something. You can't just choose it for, for the name of something new. It's like if, if Samsung introduced a new phone next year and they said, we're going to call it the iPhone. This is, this is the true iPhone. This is the real iPhone. No, the name is already taken. And Christian doesn't mean somebody who follows the teachings of Jesus. It's never meant that and it never will mean that. A Christian means somebody who believes these supernatural truths, who believes in the creed, who can sign off on these statements. That's part of it. And so we spent eight weeks trying to help you get there. And what we admitted all the way along is that some of these things are hard to believe. You know, they're they're supernatural. They, they, They defy belief. But one of the things we tried to do in this series is point out that you're not just choosing 
this Christian set of beliefs, this Christian story, you're not choosing it in a vacuum. It's multiple choice. You've got a set limited, uh, limited set of options that you have to choose from. Because the fact is, we're here. We're all here. We know that much. And so you got to have some story about how we got here and why we're here and where we're going and how do you explain all these things that we experience and these feelings that we feel. You have to have some story. Everybody's got some story. So the Christian story seems kind of hard to believe until you compare it to some of the other stories. And what we did throughout the series is we compared it primarily to the, to the one main rival story that people in New York subscribe to today without even thinking about it. They just assume it's true. This story, this materialistic, naturalistic story that says everything happened by accident. Everything you see happened by accident. And what we said over and over again is, well, the Christian story seems kind of hard to believe until you compare it to that one. And that one seems even more hard to believe. So the first element in becoming a Christian is, now this is not to say you don't still have doubts. It's not to say that you don't still have questions or that you understand it all or that you're 100% certain. That's not what it is. It's saying out of all the stories out there, out of your limited choices, multiple choice, as a matter of probability, as a matter of process of elimination, as a matter of logical coherence, you say, you know what? I think the Christian story may be the best one. I think this may be the most accurate description of my life and the universe that we have. And if you can just get there to that point of saying it kind of makes sense, and it kind of makes more sense than all the other stories, if you can get there, then you're halfway home. You've got the belief part. So that's the first section of the sermon. And the first thing you have to do to become a Christian is you have to believe. But that's not enough. So let's go to the second half of the sermon. Secondly, this morning, the second thing you have to do to become a Christian is you have to trust. What's the difference between trust and belief? Well, belief is intellectual. Trust is relational and emotional. Belief is something you do with your head. Trust is something you do with your heart and also with your hands to some extent. You, you act. You have to you prove it with your action. Belief is something that applies to statements. Trust is something that applies to persons. So, you know, I say it's relational. If you think about like in a marriage, uh, you, can, you can say, um, you can use the phrases, I believe in my wife, you know, which I guess means like, I think she can do this hard thing. That's the way people use that phrase. If you say, I believe in you, it's like you, you can do it. Or you, you can say, uh, even, I believe in my wife. You could say, I believe my wife, which just means I, I think she's telling the truth. But that's less important. You know, we don't use those phrases that much in this type of relationship. What's way more important in a marriage is not belief, but trust. The question is, do I trust my wife? Do I trust her in my heart, and do I trust her with the way that I act? Do I trust her enough to share with her what's really going on? To show her who I really am, knowing that she's not going to take advantage of me, knowing that she'll still love me even if she sees the real me. Do I trust her with our kids? Do I, do I trust her enough to not second-guess her decisions, to not swoop in and come and try to do it my way? Do I trust her to keep our vows such that I don't even think about it? I never even worry about it for a second. And the answer in, in my case is yes, I trust my wife. It's this emotional thing. It's this relational thing. And that's how it has to be with God, not just belief, not just believing in the statements of the creed, 
but trusting him. Do you trust him with your soul? So you don't worry about what's going to happen to you after you die. You know, he's just saying that song, when I see the grave, I'll see Jesus. Can you say that? You, do you trust that in your soul, in your heart? You trust him with your life now, which means you, you do what he says. You, you trust him that his rules for you are good. You know, it's not just a marriage. Uh, we've talked about this many times before, too. There's two main metaphors that the Bible uses to talk about our relationship with God. The first is a marriage, but the second is the parent-child relationship. So in the parent-child relationship, it's not so much a relationship of equals as it is with, with the marriage metaphor. If God is our father, that means that trusting him, we have to do what he says. We have to believe that his rules for us are good. I've talked about this with my, my girls many times before. If we're going to have a, a good relationship, if I'm going to have a good, healthy, strong relational bond with my daughters, it has to be built on trust. And primarily that means they have to trust me. They have to trust in my rules, and they have to live happily under my rules. And what I've said before is that they don't always do that. And I've told many stories about this, so I'm not going to do it again today. But, but the point that I've tried to make in the past is that in the heart of every child is this spirit of rebellion. And it's in the heart of every man and woman, this spirit of rebellion against our father. We think today, we think of rebellion as like always a good thing, uh, partly because we're Americans and our country was started from a rebellion and partly because of uh, Silicon Valley. You know, it's all about disruption is the name of the game. It's all about move fast and break things and rebel against these old norms and these old rules. And rebellion can be a good thing. It just depends on what you're rebelling against. So if you're rebelling against a tyrannical king, well, then rebellion's a good thing. If you're rebelling against these old rules and these old norms that have no basis and have outlived their usefulness, well, then rebellion's a good thing. If you're rebelling against illegitimate authority, rebellion is a good thing. But we have forgotten that there is such a thing as legitimate authority. There is such a thing as legitimate authority. You know, we, we were so conditioned today by this broken trust, by leaders who are no longer worthy of our respect, that we think all authority is illegitimate. And it's not. There's such a thing as legitimate authority. So back to the, the parent-child relationship, that's, that's a relationship where there is legitimate authority. I already gave you free uh, relationship advice earlier, so I'll just throw in some free parenting advice now, too. The number one problem parents in this neighborhood have is they are afraid of their own authority. They're afraid to be the authority. They're scared of authority. So they, they try to be a, a big buddy to their kids, and it just doesn't work. There is such a thing as legitimate authority, which is why with my girls, if I say, here's the rules, here's how it's going to be, and they rebel... Well, now the relationship's broken. They say, I'm not going to do that. No, no, no. You know, pout and scream and cross their arms and no. The relationship's broken. So th there are two ways, in theory, that the relationship could be repaired. The first way is I could say, okay. I could cave in. I could say, all right, you, you don't have to do it this time. 
And if I said that, uh, there's no question, the relationship would be repaired immediately. You know, they would go from pouting to exulting in an instant and come right back to me, come running back to me and say, oh, dad, you're so great. Let's play. So that's one way the relationship could be restored. Problem is, I'm never going to do that. I'm never going to do that, which means that in practice, there's only one way the relationship can be restored. The relationship will be broken as long as they want it to be broken. It will be broken forever if they want. It's completely up to them, and it's their choice. The only way for the relationship to be restored is for them to come back to me and say, Dad, I'm sorry. Dad, I was wrong. Dad, your rules are good rules. That's the only way for them to submit and for them to, to use another scary biblical word, for them to repent. That's what repentance is. It's coming back. It's returning. The Greek word for repent, metanoia, means change your mind that you see in the New Testament. Or the Old Testament word for repent, the Hebrew word, literally just means to go back, to return. Repentance, all that is, you know, you see that sign on the street that says, repent, for the end is near. What does that mean? It just means you go back to your father because every single one of us are like the kid that has gone away and said, no, I'm not going to live under your rules. I'm not going to do it your way. We've talked many times before on Sundays about the story of the prodigal son. And that's what the son says. You know, why does the son leave home? Why does he leave? Because he doesn't want to live under his dad's rules. And so he leaves and he goes and he does it his own way and he figures out it doesn't work. And there's this key line in the passage where it says, he, quote, came to his senses, which is what happens with my girls. You know, they're, they're, they're possessed. They are possessed. And then there is this moment where they come to their senses and they just give up and they turn around and they come back home. And that's what the, the son in the story does is as he comes to his senses and he literally, physically turned around and started walking back down the same road he had been on, but now he's going in the opposite direction. He's going back home. To be a Christian, you have to repent because everybody's walked on this road away from God. Now, the other thing we've talked about a lot before is it's actually easier if you've done some really immoral things. You know, if you've been very straight-laced, you're going to be resistant to this. You're going to say, what do I have to repent of? And you know what? I can't help you. I can't help you because if you don't think you have anything to repent of, then there's nothing here for you. Who this is for is for those of you who you know you screwed up. You know exactly the things you've done that God said not to do. And you did them anyway and you thought it would be fine. And it's not. It's not fine. It wasn't fine. It didn't work out the way you thought it was going to work out. To trust him again means saying, I'm sorry and your rules for me are good, and I trust you, and I want to live in your house under your rules. I want to live with you as my father. I want to live under your authority. I want you to hear a story about somebody in our church who this has happened to recently, who was baptized last year. Please welcome Tipper Austin. My story is a pretty common one. I grew up going to church in Tennessee, but never took faith 
seriously enough for it to survive the competing priorities and temptations of going to college in New York. Along the way, I decided I didn't need God and that if he was even there, uh, he would just hold me back. A lot of people sitting here today probably understand how things went from that point on. I wasn't able to govern myself. Everything seemed great on the surface, but in private, I became selfish, foolish, and destructive. After crossing some lines that I never thought I could, I was completely caught off guard by the realization that I really couldn't consider myself a good person anymore. After about a year of carrying that thought in secret and trying to claw my way back to moral standing, I was empty. And that's when a friend invited Courtney and me to LMCC for Easter a little over three years ago now. I don't have a dramatic conversion story or an epiphany to share. Uh, I approached all of it too cautiously for that. At first, I was just curious and set out trying to learn about God and Christianity. And that was an important place to start, but it wasn't enough. Eventually, I moved beyond learning toward actually trying it out. I made some changes to obey God, tiny ones at first, and those changes made things better. Each subsequent leap of faith to obey or trust him got a little bigger, but he came through each time. He would heal or forgive or strengthen or bless or provide. And all the more as the situations that I surrendered to him got harder or seemed more impossible. After a couple of years, I realized that I wasn't just investigating God anymore. I truly trusted him because of what I had seen him do. And I noticed that I had changed. I no longer had the constant fear that I wouldn't be able to cut it on my own because I knew he was with me. I no longer had the constant guilt about my wrong decisions from the past because I knew that Jesus had paid that price for me on the cross. In other words, I came to realize that at some point during the last couple of years, and who knows exactly when, but I had for the first time become a Christian. I knew that I needed to take some step to mark this change and this decision. And for me, that step was baptism. I chose to be baptized last year as a way of publicly proclaiming something that had already become true in my heart. But somehow it still felt more real once I took this step in front of the congregation. And after being baptized, I understood why it's so important, because it took my relationship with God and with his church to a new level. Thank you for listening. So as far as you're concerned, you know, I, I asked uh, Tipper to share that because I think that a lot of people can relate. I think a lot of people can relate to that story. And the question is, what are you going to do? What are you going to do about it? Balls in your court. We have a baptism coming up in just two weeks. So the first thing I'd encourage you to do is to sign up to be baptized, to, to talk to somebody about being baptized as a way of publicly making this statement. 
but you don't have to wait two weeks, you know, like Tipper said. This is also something that, that's true internally. It's true in your heart before you even make this public statement. And that's something you can do just through prayer, just through saying it to God. So I want to give you the chance to do that now as we pray. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you're here this morning and you feel like it's time, you feel like it's time to cross the line from investigating to committing, all you have to do is just Pray these words or some version of these words. It's not a, a magic prayer. It's not an incantation. Just the spirit of these words, to whatever extent they're true of you, just pray them in your heart silently with me. You just say, God, I have tried to live life on my own, and it hasn't worked out the way I thought it would. I've tried to be a good person on my own, and I failed. You know that I have a hard time believing in things I can't see. And that includes you. But I do believe in you. There is part of my heart that believes in you and believes in your son Jesus and believes that he died for me and rose again. There's part of me that believes that through him I can be saved. So this morning... I ask you to take me as I am. I give you my life. I confess my sins. I ask for your forgiveness. I ask you to lead me and guide me. And I promise to try to obey you. I pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.